0: Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That big- There's a special growing deep within you. That thing, that thing, that thing with James, that thing, that thing, that thing with James. That's me.
1: Welcome, everyone. Welcome one and all, to episode 57 of That Thing with James J. Asher 2nd I'm your host, James J. Asher Second. That's me. <clears throat> Let me turn this mic down. As always, I I, I wish I had a sound engineer to kind of help with this shit. So today, today we're talking about time. Specifically, Time you spend at work and why you spend too much time at work and why that is, it's not your fault. You've been duped, as I've been talking a lot about recently on this show. Uh, Let's see here. I am very much anti-work. I think work is dumb. Um, People should not have to work. People should want to work, but they should do things that they want to do instead of uh, do things that they don't want to do, simply so that they can survive on a very basic level. And the way, um, the way the world is set up right now for most quote unquote first world or ad- quote unquote advanced. Cultures, um, you have to work all the time to get your basic needs met, and uh, I don't, I don't think that's a good thing at all. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, now, I am certainly not an expert in this field, but um, it is something I have done uh, some moderate research on over the past several years, and it is something that has been on my mind for most of my life. Let me start by telling you about a recurring dream I used to have. Um, I've had a few recurring dreams throughout my life, but this one was very, very frequent. I haven't had it um, since the last time I had it, which has been well over a decade. But I had this recurring dream, this one recurring dream that started up um, when I was about probably eight or nine years old. And I continued to have it throughout my teens into late teens, about 17. So a good almost decade there, I used to have this recurring dream. And I'm going to tell you about this recurring dream right now. <laughs> um, so it starts off, and it's going to be a little funny, um, you know, because I I grew up in the 90s um, until, I don't know, <laughs> until I was uh, no longer growing up in the 90s. Um, so there are some influences you will see from the 90s. In my dream. Uh, but anyway, here's the dream. I start mm-hmm. off, I, I I come to in the dream, I, I become aware, I've gained consciousness in a a cell, kind of like a prison cell. Except this cell does not look like your average prison cell. There's no um steel or iron bars there's no cinder block walls there's no toilet sink metallic combo thing stuck to the wall no the inside of this cell looked like a changing room you would find say at a jc Penny's in a mall Uh, And it was one of those things where, you know, they've got the door, and you can see under the door there's a good, like, one-foot gap between the bottom of the door and the floor. Uh, And it also looks like wooden slats, almost like wooden blinds, except it's all solid. You can't really peer down through it or anything. But it was that. It was painted white. Everything else was painted white with just uh, ugly kind of gray mall carpet that's just very flat and hard you know what i mean just glued right on top of some like like a cement floor i suppose and there's a mirror on one side and some hangers and it is just legitimately a uh a dressing room okay and a jc penny in a mall maybe one of the older JCPenney's because they look a little different now, but not that much different. Um, and there's also that built-in bench chair that you can sit on in in dressing rooms. And if you stood up on it, you could peer over the partition wall between each dressing room slash cell, prison cell. You could look over into the neighboring dressing room slash prison cell. I looked over and in mine, or my neighbors in in the next cell were uh, the two most popular Wayans brothers. There was um, Damon Wayans and I forget the other dude's name. He he played the the, um, closeted homosexual jock in... In scary movie, I forget that one's name, but Damon I think is the the younger Wayne's brother. Well, it's those two Wayne's brothers were in the cell next to mine, and uh, I just say hi, and I'm a little confused and concerned. I'm not quite sure how I ended up in this dressing room. The door, which there's there's no lock on it, at least on my side, I can't open the door. It's locked shut. Uh, And the Wayans brothers, they just, we just talk and I don't even ask how I got where I am. I just, I'm just there. Okay, jump cut. Because that happens in a lot of my dreams. There's no transition. It's just a jump cut to the next scene. I am nude, except for a pair of skis strapped to my feet and a thick chain, a, a metallic collar around my neck, um, and a very thick chain at the little uh, hook hole at the front of the collar, and this long, thick chain leads away from me and ends up in the hand of a giant humanoid machine. Have I talked about this dream on this podcast before? Maybe I did in the really early episodes, but... Um, I don't remember it, so I'm going to tell it again now because I feel like it relates to the subject of this episode. Um, I look around me. I've got I'm, I'm butt naked all the way down, except for the collar and the chain around my neck, and the skis, the snow skis, strapped to my bare feet. And I look around me, and there are dozens of other humans, um, young, old. Male, female, non-binary, dozens of humans in the same state. Everyone stripped completely nude, but for the skis strapped to their feet and the metal collar around their neck. And each metal collar was attached to a thick chain, and all those chains led to the hand of this giant humanoid machine. This thing must have been about, I'd say, 30 feet tall. Um you know, as tall as your average, uh, telephone pole. Those are, I think, standard are like 30 feet tall. Well, that's how tall this humanoid machine was. I mean, it was just a giant machine, beefy, stocky, looked like a human, but it was a giant robot. Um, although it didn't behave like it. I just knew that it was a robot that just looked like a giant human. And it is running across this icy desert landscape, uh, 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 a winter desert, like, like Antarctica. It's just flat and hard ice everywhere, um, and maybe a little bit of hard-packed snow on top of the ice, but it's mostly just ice it's freezing, and you look off in every direction, all, to, all the way to the horizon. It's just flat and a little craggy. There may be some rocks sticking up here and there, but it is it's a frozen desert. And this giant humanoid machine is running hard. Boom, 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 boom. But despite its weight, it's still not cracking the solid several feet of solid ice and hard pack and rock and it's dragging all of us prisoners along by our necks and we're you know gliding without resistance gl- gliding frictionlessly across the frozen landscape another jump cut i am in some backyard of a nice oh white painted two-story house. And for some reason, I always thought that that house was located in Oklahoma, in the town I would later end up um, living and growing up in. Mind you, I started having this dream before I lived in Oklahoma. I started having this dream when I was living in New Jersey. and But I had been to Oklahoma and specifically to my dad's hometown, Um, and later my hometown. Um, I had been there to visit, previously to visit family, aunts, uncles, cousins, and so on. Um, But yeah, I started having this dream in New Jersey, but for some reason in the dream, this backyard and this house were located in this small town in eastern Oklahoma. And on one side, there's a fence leading to the neighboring house's backyard, and on the other side... Of the backyard, there's just uh, shrubbery, just tall bushes, tall shrubbery um, acting as a sort of fence from whatever's on the other side. You can't really see through it because it's dense shrubs. And on the in the back, there's just sort of like a little alleyway that leads to a street. It's not a dumpy kind of alleyway, though. This is a very sort of Norman Rockwell Americana, nice... Um, Uh, you know, uh, atomic family, just your general nice whitewashed Americana sort of a scene. We're in the backyard, the grass is green, trimmed to perfection, and all the dozens of people that were around me previously in the frozen desert, we're all at this backyard in this house, people walking in and out of the back door of the house, and we're having a cookout, and it's in the summer. At some time, maybe around the 4th of July. It's a nice, balmy summer day, midday. We're cooking hot dogs. We're cooking burgers all on the grill. And it's not too hot. It's not too humid. There's a nice little cool breeze. Uh, not a cloud in the sky. It's just bright, sunny, and perfect. And along the, the little alleyway at the back end of the backyard, there's like telephone wires over that little alley. Well, um, everything feels good. I know. I feel like I'm in Oklahoma for some reason. And, oh, there's just this weight lifted. There's this liberation that all of us are free of this machine that had had us shackled and imprisoned at the beginning of the dream. Um, so everyone is having a great time. And I'm turned around talking to somebody or just watching the people. I have my back turned to the little alley at the back of the backyard. When a shadow is cast upon the scene, I think it's a big cloud. But people turn and horror. Their faces grow long with horror as I turn around and see what they are seeing. The giant humanoid machine that we had apparently escaped from has returned and it's back with a vengeance it has like a a size fitting huge like some kind of weapon it's got like a like an assault rifle of some kind um actually no it didn't it did not have an assault rifle i'm mixing things up i turn around I see this giant machine, and I feel like a hero. It's my turn, or, or it's my time to fight this machine. So I take a few steps toward it, and there's a rustling in the, in the bushes to my left. I look to my left, and I don't see any hands or anything, but from out of the bushes, pop and land onto the grass beside me an assault rifle and a... A combat knife, almost like a Bowie knife, but a big combat knife, like military one, with the kind of jagged, serrated back on it. You know what I mean? I pick up the two weapons. I put the, the knife in my teeth, the sharp blade, main blade sticking out, and I pick up the assault rifle, cock it, and start firing, opening fire at the giant humanoid machine. It takes several hits and then falls down on its side onto the uh, the asphalt of the alleyway. I charge toward the fallen humanoid machine. I jump on top of it, grab the knife from out of my mouth, use it to stab right into the neck area, and tear a big gash in its false flesh. I peel the synthetic flesh apart. And where on a human there would be veins, a jugular, and tendons, and other bits of fibrous flesh, there are instead wires. Thick wires, thin wires, but wires nonetheless. I put the knife back in my teeth and use my bare hands to start ripping at the wires as if I'm ripping out its jugular. Ripping and tearing Arc light sparks flying everywhere as I rip with a madness at these wires at the neck in a desperate scramble to put this machine out of commission. After a few wild moments of ripping, the machine seems to be out of commission. It's not moving, it's not making any noise, it feels dead. So I climb down off of the machine and amble back toward the crowd that was pressed up against the house and, you know, just kind of stunned in fear. I walk back toward them, adrenaline pumping through my veins, heart pounding, but nonetheless clear-headed, and I think everything's done. People start coming out. People look shocked, but nonetheless relieved. And then people's mouths start to drop again. And the shadow is cast yet again upon the crowd. I turn around and see that the giant humanoid machine is getting back up on its feet. And from out of a pocket or something on the clothes it was wearing, it pulls out a giant fragmentation grenade. Giant to to us, but, you know, size, size-wise fitting for its size, relatively. It pulls the pin on the grenade, and everyone makes a mad scramble through the back door into the house to hide and, and, and try to get, you know, into a safe place. I'm the last person to get into the house. I grab the grill I pull it to kind of put in front of the back door. As I close the back door, I look through the window and see the machine lob its giant fragmentation grenade toward the house. And just before the grenade explodes, I would jerk. My body would just jerk. Like when you have those dreams where you're falling and right when you land, you wake up. Your, body, your whole body jerks. That's how I would wake up. Just before the thing exploded, boom, I'd wake up. And I had this dream again and again and again. Some Sometimes I would have the dream a few nights in a row. And it really stuck with me. Clearly, I can give a pretty vivid description of the scene. Because um, that's, well, recurring dreams, they recur, right? Um. The most I've been able to gather is that perhaps since a very young age, perhaps before I even really understood what was going on in my mind, I felt like people, humans, were imprisoned and controlled by some machine larger than them. A machine that would rather kill them than allow them to get away Free, and that seems rather mm, allegorical, metaphorical for some ideas, some ideals, some philosophies. I would later come to understand and be able to articulate um, with a greater detail and handling on the ideas, Um, and that's. That's how I'm starting this episode. I, I'm gonna take a quick water break and I will be right back. And I'm back. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the subject of work hours. Um, how we came to have the eight hour work day or 40 hour work week that we have now um, for, for many professionals. And um, where I wish we were by now um so i've done a bit of research and i'm not so knowledgeable about this topic that i feel comfortable giving like a full lecture on it so the way i am going to approach this is that um i will be educating myself along with you so hopefully this will be a process of you getting to observe or, or listen to me educate and kind of share what I'm learning as I go along with you. So the first thing I wanted to start with was this thing I learned about in undergrad when I was studying uh, communication studies called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. You may have heard of it before. It's pretty well known. Uh, let's see here. Okay, make sure I've got all my tabs. So, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. um, It's a motivational theory in psychology comprising a five-tier model of human needs often depicted as hierarchical levels within a pyramid. Real quick, I'm reading this off of a website called simplypsychology.org. The article's entitled Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, written by Saul McLeod, um, updated March 20th, 2020. So, Uh, hierarchical levels within a pyramid, the needs lower down in the hierarchy must be satisfied before individuals can attend to the needs higher up. From the bottom of the hierarchy upwards, the needs are psychological, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. For those of you viewing, hopefully you can see this, this is what the pyramid looks like. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Um, So at the very basic, at the base level, it's psychological needs, or or rather physiological needs, excuse me, which are food, water, warmth, and rest. You need stuff, you need to eat, so your body can function, you need to be able to rest, you need to be able to sleep, you need to be able to get uh, sustenance, nutrition, and hydration. Um, and you also need um, warmth, but not too hot. You, you need to live somewhere that your body's not going to shut down. So, that is to attend to your physiological needs. The next step up on this pyramid is uh, the safety needs, which are security and safety, shelter, and things like that. So, these are both your basic needs. You need food water shelter and safety that is safety from from predators like like bobcats or or any kind of creatures safety from the elements be it rain or wind or boulders or stuff you need a place that you can feel safe in so that you may be able to rest and Uh, achieve some slightly lower state of stress because if you're constantly, constantly trying to fight to get your body what it needs on a physiological level, um, you're going to be stressed out pretty often. You're going to be on guard a lot uh, looking out for lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my. Well, so you need shelter and safety. The next step up uh, begins the Psychological needs, which begin with um, belongingness and love needs. That is intimate relationships and friends. That is a functional relationship with family. That is finding someone who's a lover, someone uh, you can share your your deepest feelings with, someone you can share your body with, someone you can share moments of life with. So you need food and shelter you need food and water and then you need shelter and then you need personal relationships interpersonal relationships and then the next step up is esteem needs that is prestige and feeling of accomplishment that is being a member of some type of group within a certain kind of culture that is helping to um provide toward the the health function and success of whatever tribe you find yourself living in okay and then the next step up from that is self fulfillment needs and these are at the top of maslow's hierarchy of needs that is self-actualization, that is achieving one's full potential, including creative activities, that is having a peace of mind, that is having a sound philosophy that brings you peace of mind, Uh, and that is creating works of arts, that is creating, um, I I was about to say, like, feats of, like, engineering and, and, um you know, inventing new theories and science and architecture and landscape and stuff like this. But all of those, I feel, are types of art. That is being able to think of something, being able to live up and become the person that you want to be or become the person that you are, to feel secure with yourself. So again, from the bottom to the top, these needs in Maslow's hierarchy of are are Physiological needs, safety needs, belongingness and love needs, esteem needs, and self-actualization. Uh, let's see here. I, I didn't read the rest of this shit. This is pretty long here. Uh, let's see. What does it say? Deficiency def- bleh bleh. deficiency needs versus growth needs. Um, This five-stage model can be divided into deficiency needs and growth needs. The first four levels are often referred to as deficiency needs, and the top level is known as growth or being needs. Deficiency needs arise due to deprivation and are said to motivate people when they are unmet. Those, those needs. Also, the motivation to fulfill such needs will become stronger the longer the duration they are denied. So the longer you go without getting food, the stronger your desire to get that food uh, will grow. Let's see. Well, for example, <laughs> the longer a person goes without food, the more hungry they will become. Maslow in 1943 initially stated that individuals must satisfy lower level deficit needs before progressing on to meet higher needs, uh, higher level growth needs. However, he later clarified, I I was about to bring this up, he later clarified that satisfaction of a need is not an all-or-none phenomenon, admitting that his earlier statements may have given the, quote, false impression that a need must be satisfied 100% before the next need emerges. For example, me. I go hungry sometimes. I live a very frugal life. That is to say, I don't make a lot of money, but I I manage to manage. And I, I still... Uh, you know, some days I feel it more than more or less than others, but I'd say I'm pretty self-actualized, um, at least for where I am in my life, uh, as in terms of understanding myself, in terms of having a um, peace of mind about life in general, philosophical, personal, as far as like creating sorts of things. <clears throat> okay, so... When a deficit need has been more or less satisfied, it will go away and our activities become habitually directed towards meeting the next set of needs that we have yet to satisfy. These then become our salient needs. However, growth needs continue to be felt and may even become stronger once they have been engaged. So say you've got food on the lockdown, you've got enough um, farming and reliable you know food to come to you you've got a reliable uh place to live so you've got these things met you still think about them cuz you still have to eat and you still have to you know take shelter but they're not weighing as heavily on your mind as they were when you didn't have food and didn't have a place to take shelter um but once you get those things more or less on the lockdown you can think of more stuff like I want to find a lover. Um, I want to get better about talking to my family members and just, you know, being there for them. And once you have that, you might be a little more free to say, what do I want to do? Like, I think I want to build a tower of rocks. I think I want to do that. And that's more towards self-actualization. Now, The way this relates to work hours is that it is kind of both unintentionally but also most certainly by design that the way the working class exists right now and the way the ruling class exists right now is that material needs, that is food, shelter, security, money. Those are material things, things that exist, things that you can touch uh, with your five senses. Not, um, you know, not incorporeal needs, but these are things you actually physically need um, to survive and stay healthy and well-rested. It is so difficult to be able to get those needs because it is so expensive to get and maintain those needs it's so expensive to pay rent it's so expensive to travel to be able to get to work to be able to afford a car so you can travel to and from work to be or or any type of transportation it's so expensive to be able to feed yourself a nutritionist, a nutritious meal. And so you have to work and work and work because wages are for, for many, 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 for the majority of people, wages are so low, so low and uh, paid on the hour that, you know, people have to work and work and work just to be able to barely scrape by and pay off their debt from college or whatever college that they went to to get a degree uh, to get experience as you know uh, as a student and perhaps later as an intern in a certain field so that you can get into that field and hopefully get enough money for your labor from that field so that it makes affording your more base needs a little bit easier but it's not that easy for so many people. And the the wealth gap between those who have and those who have not is only growing. And it has been really, really bad, as far as from what I understand, since not too long before I was born in 1987. Apparently, it started getting really bad when Reagan was president of the United States. Um more on that in a bit. So, let's let's move onward here. Deficiency needs, growth needs, blah 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 blah. Okay. Let's move on here to the 8-hour workday. So, here I'm I'm consulting Wikipedia. The 8-hour movement or A 8-hour day movement, or 40-hour week movement, also known as the short-time movement, was a social movement to regulate the length of a working day, preventing excesses and abuses. It had its origins in the Industrial Revolution in Britain, where the industrial production in large factories transformed working life. At that time, the working day could range from 10 to 16 hours a day. And the work week was typically six days a week. And the use of child labor was very common. Also, there were like no safety regulations for workers at this time. Um, If you go into a, a restaurant or a warehouse or anything, the door that leads into the space, if you notice, the door opens outward, not inward, not toward the inside of the building or the structure. It opens outward. The reason being is because in these factories uh, in the industrial revolution sometimes something would catch on fire and there's a lot of poor people a lot of immigrants work a lot of children working in these factories and a fire may start and there are hundreds of people uh, working in rough um, overheated um, very unsafe, working conditions, a very dangerous environment, if a fire breaks out, people are going to rush toward the door. And it used to be that the doors would open inward, like say for most houses, you know, a house, the door will open inward toward the inside of the structure. Um, But the thing is, people would bum rush the doors and be unable to get it open because it would be jammed or whatever and people would be jamming themselves up against the door and they couldn't get the door open and then they'd burn alive. So one of the uh, like OSHA regulations that you see now, one of those started um, in the industrial age uh, with with factories, with fires. The door has to open outward so that you know, if people are bum-rushing the door, they're not going to all jam it or anything. It opens outward, so people can just continue the, the, the rush like water going through a drain of people running from a fire out of the building, out hopefully towards safety. Onward. Um, Robert Owen had raised the demand for a 10-hour day in 1810 and instituted it in his socialist enterprise, New Lanark. By 1817, he had formulated the goal of the 8-hour day and coined the slogan, 8 hours labor, 8 hours recreation, 8 hours rest. Women and children in England were granted the 10-hour day in 1847. French workers won the 12-hour day after the February Revolution of 1848. God, I love the French, and the French love a revolution. I wish the United States had a little more of that spirit. Um, A shorter working day and improved working conditions were part of the general protests and agitation for... Chartists' reforms and early organization of trade unions The International Working Men's Association took up the demand for an eight-hour day at its congress in Geneva in 1866, declaring, "Quote: The legal limitation of the working day is a preliminary condition without which all further attempts at improvement and emancipation of the working class must prove abortive." End quote and. Quote, the Congress uh, Congress proposes eight hours as the legal limit of the working day. End quote. (laughs) Karl Marx saw it as as of vital importance to the workers' health, writing in Das Das Kapital in 1867, quote, By extending the working day, therefore, capitalist production not only produces a deterioration of human labor power by robbing it of its normal, moral, and physical conditions of development and activity, but also produces the premature exhaustion and death of this labor power itself. Um, Let's see, I want to skip on, there's a little... Subject here of North America. Uh, let's focus on the United States since that's where I'm based. And, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I'm very uh, narcissistic about where I live, I suppose. Uh, in the United States, Philadelphia carpenters went on strike in 1791 for the 10 hour day. By the 1830s, this had become a general demand. In 1835, workers in Philadelphia organized the first general strike in North America, Solidarity! Solidarity! Led by Irish coal heavers. Their banner read, From 6 to 6, 10 hours work and 2 hours for meals. Labor movement publications called for an 8-hour day as early as 1836, 1836. Boston ship carpenters, although not unionized, achieved an eight-hour day in 1842. In 1846, the eight-hour workday quickly became a central demand of the Chicago labor movement. The Illinois legislature passed a law in early 1867 granting an eight-hour day, but it had so many loopholes that it was largely ineffective. A citywide strike that began on the 1st of May in 1867 shut down the city's economy for a week before collapsing. On the 22nd of June in 1868, Congress passed an eight-hour law for federal employees, of course, bitches, which was also of limited effectiveness. It established an eight-hour workday for laborers and mechanics employed by the federal government. President Andrew Johnson had vetoed the act, but it was passed over his veto. Johnson told a working men's party delegation that he couldn't directly commit himself to an eight-hour day. He nevertheless told the same delegation that he greatly favored the, quote, shortest number of hours consistent with the interests of all, end quote. According to Richard F. Seltzer, however, the intentions behind the law were, quote, immediately frustrated, end quote, as wages were cut by 20%. Hmm. So, it seems like the owners of the means of production, owners of factories and shops, um, means of production being those, Companies, things that builds build stuff, provide some service or commodity. The owners of the means of production—you know—they didn't blink twice. They didn't hesitate to shortchange the workers. All right, so. On the 19th of May in 1869, President Ulysses Grant issued a national eight-hour law proclamation. In August of 1866, the National Labor Union at Baltimore passed a resolution that said, quote, the first and great necessity of the present to free labor, wait, wait, what? The first and great necessity of the present to free labor of this country from capitalist slavery, capitalist slavery, is the passing of a law by which eight hours shall be the normal working day in all states of the American Union. We are resolved to put forth all our strength until this glorious result is achieved, end quote. And there's quite a bit more history to it, but if you'll notice, labor unions pop up because the capitalists who own the factories, the companies, the corporations who own the means of production always tend to fuck over the workers, the people who produce the value of the labor, who produce the 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 products of said labor. Um and so workers again and again and again have to unionize to have any kind of voice and power and leverage against their owners, against the, uh, the capitalists. And if you'll notice, these, um, these labor movements, these, these unions often tend to be or uphold um, socialist propositions. I wonder why that is. And we'll get to it here in a little bit. I want to read um, one more thing here. All right, here we go. So here's this, at uh, this website called askspoke.com. Uh, the title is, Is 40 Hours a Week Too Much? Here's What History and Science Say, written by Jessica Green with an E after the N. Most professionals work Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., but why is that? Who decided we should work 40 hours a week? Is it a magic number that leads to productivity in the workplace and happiness at home, or is it just a carryover from the days when most people worked in manufacturing? Is 40 hours a week too much or too few? or just right. It's an important question for HR professionals to ask. The schedule your office maintains can have major impacts, blah, 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 blah. I think this article is aimed toward um, business owners. So the history of the 8-hour workday and 40-hour workweek. 8 hours labor, 8 hours recreation, 8 hours rest. This was a phrase that you just heard about. Um, Owen, um, coined by Robert Owen, an 18th century Welsh mill owner and labor rights activist. Owen was just one of the many activists and labor union groups who advocated for better working conditions after the Industrial Revolution. In the 1800s, it was common for people in manufacturing to work nearly 100 hours per week between 10 and 16-hour shifts over a six-day work week, only taking Sunday as a day rest, of course. Labor unions were the biggest early supporters of the eight-hour workday in the U.S. In 1866, the National Labor Union asked Congress, blah, blah, blah. Okay, um, let's see here. By the early 1900s, many industries had adopted the eight-hour workday, but most people were still working six days a week. That continued until 1926, when Henry Ford removed one required day of work from his employees' schedules. Ford's employees had been working 48 hours a week, 8-hour days, and 6 days a week. Removing one day resulted in 8-hour shifts for 5 days a week, what we now know as the 40-hour work week. Ford found that his workers were actually more productive working 40 hours a week than they had been working 48 hours a week. His success was the change inspired manufacturing companies all over. His success with the change inspired manufacturing companies all over the country to adopt the 40 hour work week. In 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, which required employers to pay overtime to all employees who worked more than 44 hours a week. They amended the act two years later to reduce the work week to 40 hours, and in 1940, the 40 hour work week became US law. Okay, so there's that. And then I want to read this one other article, uh, at least some of it. This is from Quartz.com, or Quartz at Work, QZ.com. The title is The 4-Hour Workday is Not a Crazy Idea. It was written November fourteenth, two 2018, or published then, written by Jonas Altman. It begins... Excuse me. (laughs) Um, The case for the four hour workday is grossly misunderstood. It's often confused with Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. Simply drop, ship some bizarro electronics to your squanky Shopify store and voila, you can kick back for the rest of the week in your underwear. No, but that's not what the 4-Hour Workday is all about. The 4-Hour Workday is about hard science and the limits to our cognition. Let me take a quick interjection here to uh, get some water. <laughs> I'm thirsty. I'm back. Um, (laughs) The battery on the camera is running low, so I got to try to get through this. All right, back to the uh, Quartz article. Um, A shorter workday gives knowledge workers more energy, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. The four-hour workday is grossly misunderstood. It's often confused with Tim Ferriss, blah, 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 blah. Um, But that's not what the 4-Hour Workday is all about. The 4-Hour Workday is about hard science and the limits to our cognition. Even for the most uh, accomplished experts, deliberate practice of any kind is best capped at 4 hours a day. A shorter workday gives knowledge workers more energy and, yes, time for what really matters. It also could provide better work to more people. Cognitive Overload Getting the mind primed for creativity can be a tricky affair, but the key to fueling your creative output is, quote-unquote, empty time. I have a lot of that. And surely a lot more people are having that now, too, with the self-quarantine in place. I'll touch on that after this article. It's in these wonderful voids where you can let your mind wander and give your subconscious a chance to get dirty. That problem that's been nagging you, uh, that's been nagging at you, may soon feel like it's starting to solve itself. Unless you're microdosing, and even then, chances are you can't squeeze more than four or five hours of deep work into a day. That is the kind of work that stretches your brain, and after an hour or so, a mental fuzz uh, tells you it's time to stop. The rest of the workday demands a fraction of the focus and is really just filler, commonly known as email. Forcing yourself to sit in front of a screen for hours on end is not just bad for your brain, it's also not a sustainable strategy for the future. Setting the right conditions to do your best work requires both scheduled bursts and planned breaks. It might seem counter to the time is money injunction, but it's time off that affords you the breakthroughs to leap ahead. Working more, in other words, is rarely the answer to increasing your productivity, which is precisely why famed philosopher Bertrand Bertrand Russell in a 1932 essay for Harper's advocated for the four-hour workday. Energy upkeep. We've become so enamored with productivity that we have forgotten how to slow down. We've made busyness a bragging right and, quote, I haven't got the time, end quote, our collective mantra. These poor souls with excess time on their hands, well, they must simply not have enough work to do. Have you ever heard that from your boss? I'm not paying you I'm not paying you to sit around. If you're stand if you got time to stand around and do nothing, you've got time to find something to do. Surely you've heard that from some asshole boss. Um, let's see. But the goal of a more deliberate work day peppered with bouts of deep focus rather than perpetual failing is all about managing your energy. Instead of looking at how we spend our time, we should be aware of how we're funneling our working spirit. Startup entrepreneurs coding marathoners, workaholics, struggle pornographers, and many may balk at this. Their always-on badges are worn with pride, but ask yourself, would you want your nurse taking care of you at the end of a 12-hour shift or at the beginning of a four-hour one? Your answer is why a pioneering Dutch healthcare company actually does offer four-hour shifts. Spreading work around. The hoopla around the four-hour workday is about giving control to workers to do the work they need to do in their own time and in their own way. It's trading in the bulky industrial overcoat for a luminous information cape. If we get our act together quickly, these changes could mean a new age of good work and a better way of life. Artificial intelligence may be the key to realizing a shorter workday. AI's predictive capabilities will help us make faster and better decisions. The richer the data set we feed our personal productivity pals, the better they'll counsel us on the optimal way to expend our energy. With the automation of low-level and mind-numbing tasks, ideally we are freed up to focus on our deep work sessions. Of course, we may find that instead of working smarter, we squander our newfound time. Having pointless tasks automated won't suddenly make them worthwhile. It will force us to consider not just how much we work, but to rethink how we find meaning in it. The benefits are no longer uh, in dispute. Fewer sick days, cost savings, and better work-life integration and with an enhanced sense of well-being and self-respect, workers tend to be more creative, productive, committed, and collaborative. A shorter work week could also mean companies save on salaries and re- and can reinvest those resources in the training and development of their people. It could also mean more jobs for the unemployed. New Zealand, Sweden, and Britain are all fans of the shorter work week. Quote, "...I believe that in this century we can win a four-day working week with decent pay for everyone." End quote. Francis O'Grady, the head of the Trades Union Congress in England, recently remarked, "...the majority of people in the country agrees." of UK workers think a four-day working week would make them more productive. And in the United States, software company Basecamp has been experimenting with a shorter work week for more than a decade. So too has the state of Utah. The practice of working long hours unnecessarily will stop sooner rather than later. Someday, we might even value all the work we do that isn't waged. This revised view of work will look to quality, not quantity, and could finally put to rest that nasty habit of lunching at one's desk. Uh, Man, I already closed out that other article. (laughs) There was some stuff in there I wanted to see. But I've been researching this subject for a number of years now. And um, again and again, researchers find that Yeah. If you're especially, you know, doing like uh, professional white collar work, you're spending eight hours a day there, but you're really doing no more than two to four hours of actual work. The rest of the time is spent maybe zoning out or doing some email or going to some sort of unnecessary meeting or going to the bathroom. Um, So you're sitting there doing all this work, for or or sitting there for so long, for only a fraction of that amount of time spent doing work. And it's just wasted time. And I say that we shouldn't have to waste that time. I say we should be able to work no more than four hours a day. And here's the thing, capitalists, they may say, yeah, sure, go for it. But they will not pay you for the hours that you're going to be taking away. You know They're going to dock your salary. They're going to dock your wage. Um, it shouldn't be that way. I think wages should be increased anyway uh, across the board for working individuals. Um, I'm sick of living in starvation wages. There are millions of others who are also equally sick of working in starvation wages. Um and it just sucks. We should be able to work less for this for more money, actually. It's it's only fair. And I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit more. I'm gonna take another break because the camera needs needs some juice. I'll be right back. And I'm back. Okay. Let's wrap this sucker up and hopefully the mic doesn't cut out. Um, I'm going to give you my take and then prove to you that Albert Einstein was a gosh darn pinko commie anti-capitalist socialist, which is really fucking cool. And it makes sense because he's a smart person. Okay. So here's my take. Time is used as a weapon against the working class and time can be used by the working class as a means of liberation and evolution. Um, So here's how it's used as a weapon against the working class. You have to work all the time. As I talked about earlier in the episode, you have to work and work and work so that you have so little time to enjoy your life. You work and work and work and you commute and then you have to do errands. You have to do chores and then you don't have a lot of uh, free time to just sit around and do nothing. You're constantly productive. You wake up first thing in the morning and you check your work emails Um you know this is especially true for for salaried people um they' are not they're not getting paid overtime um and some hourly positions the uh, the um the bosses will try to dissuade workers from working overtime because that costs them more money um but salaried positions um often i i i know several people even my brother who their boss always wants them to, you know, do more outside of the 40 hours of work. It's not uncommon for so, so many American workers to do 50 to 60 hours of work every week at home. They bring work home with them. And I'm against that. I'm very much against that. Leave work at work. Um, you need to have a clean break between the two, because if you let work constantly, um, enter your mind, I mean, it's not paying your fucking, it's on your mind all the time, but it ain't fucking paying you for, for that rent. Um, work, there shouldn't be as much of it, uh, especially considering, where technology is now. If you look back to the Industrial Revolution, what was the point of that? The point was, uh, you know, what drove it were new inventions, new technologies to increase uh, production and productivity, all right? And with that, labor should go down, so much of technology is built and intended for, um, increasing quality and even to a greater degree production, speed of production amount, and hopefully quality. But there are so many companies that, um, do the bare minimum to squeeze as much money out of a product You know, some people argue that capitalism, free market capitalism, drives innovation. I would argue the exact opposite. Um, Unfettered capitalism leaves companies to make products um, as poor quality as they can get away with. Just look up um, uh, engineered obsolescence, if that's the correct term. All sorts of stuff like that. I think if there was not so much competition to make more money, you, you make more money by selling a not the best quality product um with you know obsolescence designed into it in order to squeeze out as much money as possible so that you can buy up other companies and influence politicians so you can corner the market and you can corner, um, the laws that influence that market. Um, so you can squeeze out even more money. It's just, a it's a thing that Einstein talks about in this piece I'm going to read, but it's used against you. You work and work and work and work and you get paid so little and you have no benefits. And and it's absurd. The healthcare industry, the way it's set up in the United States is fucking criminal. And so many people are learning this right now with the pandemic and with the, the looming depression. I'm, I'm convinced it's not just going to be a recession. It's going to be a depression, full on, on top of a new type of plague. And um, so many people are now sequestered to their homes. So many people are figuring out that they actually can do their jobs from home. So many people are learning what it's like to have more time, um, less time devoted to... um. Um, the commute, less time devoted to, you know, needless meetings and other fluff. They're figuring out how long it actually takes to do their job, which is no more than four hours in a day. And people are also learning what it's like to have free time. I've talked to several people who are working from home and they're like, I'd never realized before how much free time I have and I've never had this much free time and I'm just kind of sitting around and I don't know what to do with myself. And I tell them, whatever you do, don't put it on work because they are not fucking paying you. Instead, put your free time toward resting. Put your free time toward engaging and enriching in your personal relationships. Use your free time to just daydream and imagine because you cannot force creativity. It it happens of its own accord. You can set up the right elements, be rest, comfort, etc., good nutrition. But outside of that, um, creativity tends to happen on its own. And creativity is a way you can invent new things and innovate new things, solve problems, create better systems and solutions for everything that would advance productivity, that would advance products themselves, and hopefully make labor easier. We have so much advanced technology compared to where we were over a 100 years ago when people were fighting to work just 40 hours a week as opposed to all the fucking time. With so much uh, production technology and automation available now, we should um, not have to work as much. And we should have our basic needs taken care of. Healthcare, shelter, nutrition, hydration, safety. These things are human rights, not just for the 1% but for everyone, not just for the global oligarchy. I feel, I believe with a great conviction that these are human rights for every human on the planet, all right? Everyone deserves to have these things. There is absolutely no reason that people should be struggling to put food on the plate, that people should be losing their homes right now. In 2020, with the amount of technology that we have, with the amount of knowledge we have, with the amount of skilled workers we have, this should not be a problem. And the only reason it's a problem is because of the crooks who use you and abuse you and steal your fucking money. The crooks who garnish your wages, the crooks who don't pay you what you're fucking worth. And you're worth a lot. And um, we should not have to work more than 20 hours a week. Anybody should not have to work more than 20 hours a week. And also, there's absolutely no reason that that reduction, that drastic reduction in in work and standard... Work hours. There's absolutely no reason that that would reduce productivity output. And there's no reason that that should lower the amount of money that you make for your labor. You, everyone, including you, you listening or watching, deserve to get paid more for doing less work. But do not confuse less quantity of time working. Do not confuse that for lower quality. As a matter of fact, um, study after study after study finds that people are more creative and more productive when they have just four hours of work in a day. They're not sitting around spending the other four hours of their eight-hour workday wishing the day was over or dreading having to deal with the commute and go home and scramble and try to get their chores and errands done and try to get some sleep and then just dread that they have to wake up early and go back again and they have no time to devote to themselves. They have no time to devote to their loved ones. They have no time to devote to their community people are fucking sick and tired study after study after study finds that the fewer hours one has to work for for not less wages but just the fewer hours a person has to work for the same amount of wage or salary people are happier they have fewer sick days they 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 literally don't get as ill um and they just work and live better and it's used as a weapon. Employers believe, some employers believe, um, they've got just a really fucking skewed skewed world outlook. They think work is supposed to be hard. They think uh, time is money, and, uh, and you're wasting my time. They think workers should feel fortunate. They think, you know, you should just, that life should be, unenjoyable and kind of miserable because their own life was unenjoyable and miserable when they were a child. And now they've got a little bit of power and they're going to take it out on you. Um, there's no reason healthcare should be tied to a job. You know why healthcare is tied to your fucking job? Because it's a weapon used against you. You would go find another job. You would take a risk to pursue a new path. You would make a career change if not for how expensive healthcare is in the United States. Your healthcare tied to your job keeps you a fucking slave. Unions. Workers' unions. If universal single-payer health care were a thing, if Medicare for all were a thing here, unions, I mean, right now, with the current system, unions spend so much of their um, their money and time and energy just to keep their health care through the company at a reasonable rate with reasonable um, coverage. If that shit was already covered by the fucking tax dollars you're already paying, if you and me and everyone else was actually getting what we are fucking paying for in taxes, then that would leave, say, unions more time and resources to devote to other labor rights, such as higher wages, such as safer working conditions, etc., etc., Time is being used against you. You have little time to get rest. You have little time to daydream. You have little time to aspire and to think of other ways of living. But if you can somehow manage to get more free time and somehow manage to get more rest, you will find that you're far more happy than you thought you were, well-rested, more focused um, just better functioning and better person all around you will problems will solve themselves like that other article said um, you will be able to imagine a new way of living you will be able to imagine innovative processes and machines and technologies that could make our lives easier that should be the pursuit of of human labor is to provide uh, the resources for our basic necessities as a human race, and beyond that, just find ways of making life easier, less painful, and better. Not just for humans, but for uh, the environment, for everyone like Star Trek. I've talked about this on the show before. It should be like Star Trek. Money should be obsolete. Money should be absolutely obsolete. And we should be pursuing new things. Pursuing knowledge and pursuing growth and understanding and compassion for us and and the universe around us. All right. Now, for this last part, I want to read, um, I'm going to try to skip over certain parts because it's pretty long, but I want to read this article written by um, Albert Einstein in the Monthly Review. It is entitled... Why Socialism? By Albert Einstein. First note from the editors. <laughs> Albert Einstein is the world-famous physicist. This article was originally published in the first issue of Monthly Review on in May of 1949. It was subsequently published... <laughs> It was subsequently published in May of 1998 to commemorate the first issue of Monthly Review's 50th year. The article begins, Is it advisable for one who is not an expert on economic and social issues to express views on the subject of socialism? I believe for a number of reasons that it is. Let us first consider the question from the point of view of scientific knowledge. It might appear that there are no essential methodological differences between astronomy and economics, scientists in both fields attempt to discover laws of general acceptability for a circumscribed group of phenomena in order to make the interconnection of these phenomena as clearly understandable as possible for example this is me um this planet over here moves this way there's another planet over there that moves that way is there any connection between The movement of those two planets, oh yeah, it's called gravity. Onward. But, in reality, such methodological differences do exist. The discovery of general laws in the field of economics is made difficult by the circumstance that observed economic phenomena are often affected by many factors, which are very hard to evaluate separately. In addition, the experience which has accumulated since the beginning of so-called civilized period of human history has, as is well known, been largely influenced and limited by causes which are by no means exclusively economic in nature. For example, most of the major states of history owed their existence to conquest "...the conquering peoples established themselves legally and economically as the privileged class of the conquered country. They seized for themselves a monopoly of land ownership and appointed a priesthood from among their own ranks." The priests, in control of education, made the class division of society into a permanent institution and created a system of values which the people were thenceforth, to a large extent unconsciously, guided in their social behavior. But historic tradition is, so to speak, of yesterday— Nowhere have we really overcome what thorstein Veblen called the predatory phase of human development. The observable economic facts Belong to that phase, and even such laws as we can derive from them are not applicable to other phases. Since the real purpose of socialism is precisely to overcome and advance beyond the predatory phase of human development, economic science in its present state can throw little light on the socialist society of the future. See, what Einstein here is implying is what I and many others feel. You know, capitalism was a way to move out of feudalism, yet here we find ourselves in yet another feudal state driven by capitalism, which runs on blood. Quite literally, runs on your pain and suffering and death. Socialism is the next step in evolution, Get with it, all right? Onward. Second, socialism is directed towards a social ethical end. Science, however, cannot create ends and, even less, instill them in human beings. Science, at most, can support the means by which to attain certain ends, but the ends themselves are conceived by personalities with lofty ethical ideals and, if these ends are not stillborn but vital and vigorous, are adopted and carried forward by those many human beings who, half-unconsciously, determine the slow evolution of society. For these reasons, we should be on our guard not to overestimate science and scientific methods when it is a question of human problems, and we should not assume that experts are the only ones who have a right to express themselves on questions affecting the organization of society. Innumerable voices have been asserting for some time now that human society is passing through a crisis, that its stability has been gravely shattered. It is characteristic of such a situation that individuals feel indifferent or even hostile toward the group, small or large, to which they belong. In order to illustrate my meaning, let me record here a personal experience. I recently discussed with an intelligent and well-disposed man the threat of another war, which in my opinion would seriously endanger the existence of humankind. And I remarked, that only a supranational organization would offer protection from that danger. Thereupon, my visitor very calmly and coolly said to me, quote, Why are you so deeply opposed to the disappearance of the human race? End quote. I am sure that as little as a century ago, no one would have thought so, would have so lightly made a statement of this kind. It is the statement of a man who has striven in vain to attain an equilibrium within himself and has more or less lost hope of succeeding. It is the expression of a painful solitude and isolation from which so many people are suffering these days. Does that not sound a lot like right now? And this was published in 1949. Let me reread this part. It is the expression of a painful solitude and isolation from which so many people are suffering in these days. Were you not isolated and suffering before this quarantine started? You, especially those of you who are millennials, who have become and the zennials even more so, we are acutely aware of this isolation. I continue reading. What is the cause, and is there a way out? It is easy to raise such questions, but difficult to answer them with any degree of assurance. I must try, however, as best I can, although I am very conscious of the fact that our feelings and strivings are often contradictory and obscure, and that they cannot be expressed in easy and simple formulas. Man is at one and the same time a solitary being and, and a social being as a solitary being he attempts to protect his own existence and that of those who are closest to him to satisfy his personal desires and to develop his innate abilities note see ask yourself how would maslow's hierarchy of needs apply to what i just read as a solitary being Humans attempt to protect his own existence and that of those who are closest to him to satisfy his personal desires and to develop his innate abilities. As a social being, he seeks to gain the recognition and affection of his fellow human beings, to share in their pleasures, to comfort them in their sorrows, and to improve their conditions of life. Only the existence of these varied, frequently conflicting conflicting strivings accounts for the special character of a man, and their specific combination determines the extent to which an individual can achieve an inner equilibrium and can contribute to the well-being of society. It is quite possible that the relative strength of these two drives is, in the main, fixed "...by inheritance. But the personality that finally emerges is largely formed by the environment in which a man happens to find himself during his development, by by the structure of the society in which he grows up, by the traditions of that society, and by its appraisal of particular types of behavior." The abstract concept of society means to the individual human being the sum total of his direct and indirect relations to his contemporaries and to all the people of earlier generations. The individual is able to think, feel, strive, and work by himself, but he depends so much upon society in his physical, intellectual, and emotional existence that it is impossible to think of him or to understand him with that, uh, <clears throat> outside the framework of society. It is society which provides man with food, clothing, a home, the tools of work, language, the forms of thought, and the most of the content of thought, His life is made possible through the labor and accomplishments of the many millions, past and present, who are all hidden behind the small word, society. It is evident, therefore, that the dependence of the individual upon society is a fact of nature which cannot be abolished, just as in the case of ants and bees. However, while the whole process of ants and bees is fixed down to the smallest detail by rigid hereditary instincts, the social pattern and interrelationships of human beings are very variable and susceptible to change. Memory, the capacity to make new combinations, the gift of oral communication, have made possible developments among human beings which are not dictated by biological necessities. Such developments manifest themselves in traditions, institutions, and organizations, in literature, in scientific and engineering accomplishments, in works of art, This explains how it happens that, in a certain sense, man can influence his life through his own conduct, and that, in this process, conscious thinking and wanting can play a part. Man acquires at birth, through hereditary, a biological constitution which we must consider fixed and unalterable, including the natural urges which are characteristic of the human species. In addition, during his lifetime, he acquires a cultural constitution which he adopts from society through communication and through many other types of influence. It is this cultural constitution with the passage which, with the passage of time, is subject to change and which determines to a very large extent the relationship between the individual and society. "...modern anthropology has taught us, through comparative investigation and so-called primitive studi- primi- study of primitive cultures, that the social behavior of human beings may differ greatly depending upon prevailing cultural patterns and the types of organization which predominate in society." It is on this that those who are striving to improve the lot of man may ground their hopes. Human beings are not condemned because of their biological constitution to annihilate each other or to be at the mercy of a cruel, self-inflicted fate. That is to say, it's not human nature to kill or be killed. That's a cultural thing. Onward. If we ask ourselves how the structure of society and the cultural attitude of man should be changed in order to make human life as satisfying as possible, we should constantly be conscious of the fact that there are certain conditions which we are unable to modify. As mentioned before, the biological nature of man is, for all practical purposes, not subject to change. Furthermore, technological and demographic developments of the last few centuries have created conditions which are here to stay. In relatively densely settled populations with goods which are indispensable to their continued existence, An extreme division of labor and a highly concentrated productive apparatus are absolutely necessary. The time, which looking back seems so idyllic, is gone forever when individuals or relatively small groups could be completely self-sufficient. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that mankind constitutes even now a planetary community uh, community of production and consumption. Going back to what I said, we are all in this together, not just as a country, but as human beings on a planet. We are all here together, and we are all neighbors. Onward. I have now reached the point where I may indicate briefly what to me constitutes the existence of the crisis of our time. Pay attention, cats and kittens, because this is where it gets real interesting. It concerns the relationship of the individual to society. The individual has become more conscious than ever of his dependence upon society, but he does not experience this dependence as a positive asset or as an organic tie, as a protective force, but rather as a threat to his natural rights, or even to his economic existence. Moreover, his position in society is such that the egotistical drives of his makeup are constantly being accentuated, while his social drives, which are by nature weaker, progressively deteriorate. All human beings, whether their position in society or whatever their position in society, are suffering from the process of deterioration. Unknowingly prisoners of their own egotism, they feel insecure, lonely, and deprived of the naive, simple, and unsophisticated enjoyment of life. Man can find meaning in life, short and perilous as it is, only through devoting himself to society. The economic anarchy of capitalist society as it exists today is, in my opinion, the real source of evil. We see before us a huge community of producers, the members of which are unceasingly striving to deprive each other of the fruits of their collective labor, not by force, but on the whole in faithful compliance with legally established rules. In this respect, it is important to realize that the means of production, that is to say the entire productive capacity that is needed for producing consumer goods as well as additional capital goods may legally be, and for the most part are, the private property of individuals. For the sake of simplicity, in the discussion that follows, I shall call workers all those who do not share in the ownership of the means of production, although this does not quite correspond to the customary use of the term. The owner of the means of production is in a position to purchase the labor power of the worker. By using the means of production, the worker produces new goods which become the property of the capitalist. The essential point about this process is the relationship between what the worker produces and what he is paid, both measured in terms of real value. Insofar as the labor contract is quote-unquote free, what the worker receives is determined not by the real value of the goods he produces, but by his minimum needs and by the capitalist's requirements for labor power in relation to the number of workers competing for jobs. It is important to understand that even in theory, the payment of the worker is not determined by the value of his product, that is to say the value of what he makes and the value of the labor involved in creating it private capital tends to become concentrated in few hands, partly because of competition among the capitalists and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labor encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of smaller ones. The result of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital... uh, uh, yeah uh, the results of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by a democratic democratically organized political society this is true since the members of a legislative bodies are selected by political parties, largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislature." The consequence is that the representatives of the people do not in fact sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably control, directly or indirectly, the main source of information—press, radio, education— It is thus extremely difficult, and indeed the in most cases quite impossible, for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusions and to make intelligent use of his political rights. That's why you see people constantly voting against their own best interests. Onward. The situation prevailing in an economy based on the private ownership of capital is thus characterized by two main principles. First, the means of production, capital, are privately owned, and the owners dispose of them as they see fit. Second, the labor contract is free. Of course, there is no such thing as a pure capitalist society in this sense. In particular, it should be noted that the workers, through long and bitter political struggles, have succeeded in securing somewhat improved a somewhat improved form of free labor contract for certain categories of workers. But taken as a whole, the present-day economy does not differ much from pure capitalism. Production is carried on for profit, not for use. There is no provision that all those able and willing to work will always be in a position to find employment, An quote-unquote army of unemployed almost always exists. The worker is constantly in fear of losing his job. Since unemployment and poorly paid workers do not provide a profitable market, the production of consumer goods is restricted, and great hardship is the consequence." Technological progress frequently results in more unemployment rather than an easing of the burden for work for all. The profit motive, in conjunction with the competition among capitalists, is responsible for an instability in the accumulation and utilization of capital which leads to increasingly severe depressions. Unlimited competition leads to a huge waste of labor and to that crippling of the social consciousness of individuals which I mentioned before. This crippling of individuals I consider the worst evil of capitalism. Let me repeat that. The crippling of individuals I consider the worst evil of capitalism. Our whole education system suffers from this evil. An exaggerated competitive attitude is inculcated into the student who is trained to worship acquisitive success as a preparation for his future career. I am convinced there is only one way to eliminate these grave evils, namely through the establishment of a socialist economy accompanied by an educational system which would be oriented towards social goals. Oh. The camera died, I knew it. Keep listening. I'm almost done here. Um, Oriented towards social goals. In such an economy, the means of production are owned by society itself and are utilized in a planned fashion. A planned economy, which adjusts production to the needs of the community, would distribute the work, to be done among all those able able to work and would guarantee a livelihood to every man, woman, and child. The education of the individual, in addition to promoting his own innate abilities, would attempt to develop in him a sense of responsibility for his fellow men in place of the glorification of power and success in our present society." Nevertheless, it is necessary to remember that a planned economy is not yet socialism. A planned economy as such may be accompanied by the complete enslavement of the individual. The achievement of socialism requires the solution of some extremely difficult socio-political problems. How is it possible, in viewing the far-reaching centralization of political and economic power, to prevent bureaucracy, from becoming all powerful and overweening how can the rights of the individual be protected and where and therewith a democratic counterweight to the power of bureaucracy be assured clarity about the aims and problems of socialism is of great significance in our age of transition since under present circumstances Free and unhindered discussion of these problems has come under a powerful taboo. I consider the foundation of this magazine to be an important public service. There you go. Why Socialism by Albert Einstein. All right. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Um, if you're able to, and if it's not going to hurt, I encourage you to uh, please donate to me uh to help support this show at patreon.com slash that thing with james you can even donate as little as one dollar a month i will only see about 80 cents of that dollar because the rest goes to the website but if you want to donate you will get access to my bi-weekly very short stories that i publish on my patreon page um Visit me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. My handle is at James J. Asher. Um, Send me an email at thatthingwithjames at gmail.com. And thank you for tuning in. I love you, and you will hear from me and hopefully see me if I can keep this goddamn camera charged up next week. I love you all. Bye-bye. Stay safe.